0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, population boom from increased portables to outsourcing cancer care to Bellingham to a shortage of housing. We look at the challenges of growth in Metro Vancouver. Plus, if you think gas prices are high today, hang on. New fuel regulations are about to increase prices at the pump. And how hot is too hot when it comes to learning? Why is there no requirement for air conditioning for new school builds? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast the show today to talk a little bit about population growth. I'm sure you'll see plenty of it this weekend, actually, whether it's uh, in a ferry lineup or, an, or, one, or on our, uh, one of our busy beaches. You're also going to be seeing it when it comes to our housing crisis, when it comes to finding rental accommodations. We're seeing it in our healthcare system. This Just this week, Surrey Emergency Room Physicians discussed the demands of their job and the energy it's required and the amount of people needing to use emergency services and the lack of resources as well. Uh, earlier, this This week on this show, we had Adrian Dixon, our health minister, who announced 50 British Columbians by the end of this month and every week following will receive cancer treatment at two clinics in Bellingham. Now, part of the reason was growth here in British Columbia. Take a listen to his response.
1: We're seeing, one, a significant increase in population. Two, uh, a lack of investment really over 15 years in some areas of care, which we're fixing by our 10-year cancer plan and other initiatives we're taking. Three, we have an aging population. And so what we wanted to do here is simply take advantage of circumstances that was there for many patients, which is to reduce wait times now while we take all the other measures to address the fundamental issue. If you look at the next 10 years, we're going to go from 30,000 cancer diagnoses in BC to 45,000. If you have cancer right now, as we speak, well, you want us to take action now. And that's what we're doing.
0: A lot of it, at the end of the day, as the minister said there, it comes down to population growth. and doesn't end there. Uh, earlier this week on this show, we also had the mayor of Surrey uh, on the program, Brenda Locke, and we talked a little bit about the fact that her community, uh, the schools in, in her community, there would be 400 portables in Surrey at the beginning of the school year in September of 2023. Take a listen to her
2: comments. In Surrey, we have 77,000 kids in our school district. That is significantly more than anywhere else. The challenge is the pressure for us uh, to build more and more housing is now starting to be impacted by the uh, impact it's having on some of our schools. We have schools, Jazz, that are 160% occupied. This is not, this is not good for Surrey students. Uh, to the point, uh,
0: as the mayor said there, double-decker portables. I would never thought I'd ever hear something like that. Double-decker portables. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the impact of this population growth on our healthcare system, on our education system, uh, is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard.
3: Good afternoon, John. Thanks
0: for having me. Yeah, you know, with all these issues, may be in different sectors and different parts of our economy, but its core issue still comes down to population boom. Um, in regards to the provincial government, let's talk a little bit about portables just for a second. Uh, how do you get out of this point beyond building more and more schools? And they are building in Surrey, but it's it's we're just not staying up with the incredible demand.
3: They build a school in Surrey, and the day it is open, it is full. And in some cases, they are already adding portables. That's how overcapacity that school district is at this point. And I would expect, as we gear up for the 2024 election, we're going to see a lot of announcements from this government announcing new schools in Surrey and Langley and other fast-growing areas in Metro Vancouver. But it takes time to build those schools. They need to acquire the land. They need to plot out the plans for the school. They need to get the permits. They need to execute. And then they need to staff And although we have this huge population boom, uh, we don't have the staff in place for a lot of these positions that we need. And that includes at schools, at hospitals, uh, other places. So we're seeing this incredible pressure point where we are short staffed, while at the same time growing, to a point where we need a lot more people on the front lines working. So uh, I don't know if there is a, there is no easy solution out of it. I'm not sure we're going to see a situation where this government can dig themselves out of a hole. You'll remember uh, former premier John Horgan promised to get rid of portables in Surrey, Mm -hmm. not just maintain them or go down. He said, I will get rid of portables. Not only was he not able to get rid of portables, there is 150 more portables in Surrey now than when he made that promise. Mm -hmm. Like, this this is something that should never have been promised, but it was, and it's a failure to meet that promise because we are seeing an issue, and as you alluded to, there are some school grounds where there are literally no more room to put a portable except for on top of another portable. Mm -hmm. And... You know, when we get to that reality, I think that's going to scare a lot of parents.
0: I I was at a basketball tournament probably a few months ago at, uh, I think it was uh, Grandview Secondary in South Surrey, and it's a brand-new, beautiful school. Uh, And and I think the NDP, since 2017, have either built or in the process of building up to 10,000 spaces new spaces in Surrey yeah. but as you said you open it up and it and it's busy from from from, from day 1 uh, and let's move a little bit uh, to the other issue which is uh, which has caught all of our attention this week which is of course sending uh, some british columbians for cancer treatment to bellingham starting on may 29th 50 people uh, a week do you think this is going to be become permanent just because the amount of uh, resources needed to expand our system here—it's going to take time. It's semi-permanent, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. And, and when you listen to Health Minister Adrian Dix, I know both speaking to you uh, and also during his press conference, he alluded to the fact that this is part of the long-term goal. And there have to go in, there are going to be questions around whether it is a tenable long-term goal. What are the costs associated with the system? Is this the most effective way to do things? You know, are we promoting? Uh, you know, a private health care system in the United States when we could be investing back into the public health care system here. I think those are all challenges that uh, this government is going to look at as it looks at what this long term solution is. It's not as simple as someone getting in their car and driving down to the hospital in Bellingham and getting their cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot more um wrinkles to that considering you're crossing an international border but you know I, you have to give it to, to health minister adrian dix he is he is willing to invest as much money as it takes to clear these backlogs to get to standards you know the reason they're doing this is because bc have fallen behind in terms of standards providing radiation after a number of weeks of diagnosis so they're willing to invest that money uh I'm just not convinced uh, that this is the long-term solution uh, to addressing those uh, concerns around standards.
0: The population issue at its core, uh, we're, we're a nation of immigrants, um, and the federal liberals have already said by 2025 we will have probably half a million immigrants coming to this country. And, I, and I'm and i old enough now, remember, we used to debate 225,000 immigrants per year coming to Canada. So it's a significant increase, number one. Uh, I recall looking at some real estate numbers of, of the, let's say, half a million or 450 at this point uh, presently, about 19 percent. So one out of five immigrants coming to Canada comes to Vancouver or British Columbia. Of that 19 percent, 16 of that 19 percent ends up in Metro Vancouver. How seriously is the provincial government taking this issue? Because it it's not like it's stopping. It is going to continue, and it's unprecedented in our lifetime to have this many people—not just from other countries, but other provinces—move to this country, this this region, Metro Vancouver specifically, but Victoria to Kelowna to Kamloops. I mean, this is unprecedented, and it is impacting us from our healthcare system to our education system, and as I said, to our housing. Uh, something's got to give here.
3: Yeah, and, and I think they're taking it seriously, but they need to ring the alarm bell to Ottawa and say, "Well." If 15% of those coming into this country are moving to our province, we need to get 15% of all federal money. Like We need to get money that matches uh, this distribution so that uh, we can get the housing that's built, we can get the schools that are needed, we can get the roads that are needed, we can ensure that the facilities are in place to support uh, this new population boom. That's not how it works in our country right now, and we are falling behind because of this and we can invest and invest and invest especially in the housing file and then all of these other things that come with that but if we're not getting the federal backing to match that population growth we are going to fall behind quickly and then it's compounded by this issue of an aging population when it comes to the healthcare system so the cancer challenges are largely linked to this gray wave people are getting older we are seeing diagnoses at higher rates you you ran the clip around minister dix uh Breaking down those numbers in terms of what we're seeing, we're we're seeing uh, hospital use go up. Uh, one of the, the systemic problems is that people are being placed in hospital when they should be put in long term care facilities uh, because there just aren't enough long term care spaces for people. So these are all massive problems that take staffing, physical resources. Uh, and the, one of the challenge, one of the things BC needs to be doing is putting more pressure on Ottawa to properly compensate the province for taking on uh, this sort of uh, level of immigration.
0: Just joining us, we are speaking to Global BC's Richard Zussman. A lot of things on our plate uh, this week: uh, population growth, uh, which is of course impacting our healthcare system, our um, education system, many other uh, challenges uh, for the government uh, today. The Supreme Court of Canada uh, decided against a former Chelawak School trustee uh, in a defamation case. Uh, basically, uh, former BCTF, BC Teachers Federation president Glenn Hansman, uh, made a statement criticizing Mister. Newfeld's. Uh, comments. Uh, this was specifically around uh, the in 2017, uh, it was an attack on the Ministry of Education's Soji 123 program, which uh, aims to foster inclusion for students who face uh, discrimination based on gender identity. Mr. Neufeld uh, was not in support of SOGI 123, uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada decided Mr. Hansman's comments in 2018, uh, where he called Mr. Neufeld's uh, comments uh, bigoted, transphobic, and hateful, uh, and they uh, considered them to be fair comment today. Uh, that was in the past. The decision, of course, came down today. Uh, Richard, in m- many cases, that conversation around SOGI in regards to uh, what our schools are teaching, and for some people, they feel that schools have gone too far, that the role at its core should be left to parents, not to schools. That conversation, that debate, uh, that culture war uh, still continues at the, at the, at the uh, school level.
3: Yeah, it's important to note that those opposed to SOGI-123 are in the minority, the significant minority. The debate still exists, the conversation still exists about what is the role of the classroom to discuss sexuality and how is it discussed? For example, my daughter is in grade six. We just got a letter that came home yesterday from the school uh, telling us that they are going to be receiving a sexual education seminar next week. What schools are doing here is attempting to work with parents to communicate what their kids are going to be learning in the classroom and working towards uh, fostering that learning at home as well. I think the viewpoints of Barry Newfeld and others are antiquated. They are in the minority. Uh, the electorate sent a message to Barry Newfeld in the last election not to send him back to school board. He has been a lightning rod um, around this issue, hugely controversial, uh, and, and spouting largely hate. Uh, this court case uh, protects, you know, Len Hansman and the criticism that the course ultimately determine Uh, were corrected. I'm not sure what precedent a case like this sends. We know that Barry Neufeld is litigious. He brought this all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. This worked its way through the courts. Glenn Mm -hmm. Hansman won every step of the way here. Uh, But ultimately, you know, now the top court in the land has determined this. But you're right. There is a there is a conversation happening. We're seeing organizations attempt to, you know, run in school board elections to wage this as their singular issue. But uh, it is it is a minority issue. Most British Columbians support the idea of inclusion uh, and having those conversations of inclusion in the classroom and understanding about, you know, the, the sexual spectrum and about soji and about uh, gender identity.
0: Yeah, and it is going to continue. We see it in uh, the debates that are quite um, polarizing in the school at the, at the school board level. We've had people booted out of school board meetings in, yeah. in Mission and in, in in the Okanagan, and it's going to continue. It's not just a BC thing. It's happening across Canada. Canada and especially uh, in the United States, where it's where it's, where it's very yeah. polarized, but let's—I got about a minute left here. I just want to ask you uh, a question on the other big issue this week. Of course, that is municipalities across the province looking to ban uh, the use of hard drugs in public places. We had uh, Katie Newstater, uh, Kamloops uh, councillor, on with us yesterday on this issue. Nanaimo has been debating and discussing this issue this week. Maple Ridge and many other municipalities throughout BC. Can we expect something from from the BC government to, to look at this as a, as a BC? wide issue, especially because we have decriminalized drugs of up to two and a half grams of hard drugs. Can we expect something in the next few weeks on this issue?
3: Yeah, I expect that parks will be added to the list of places where hard drugs are not allowed to be used. So as part of that decriminalization, uh, schools were a restricted area. Uh, I expect that parks will be added to that, especially if we start seeing more kids going to parks. I spoke to Tom Dias, the Kelowna mayor uh, for Focus BC today on BC1. You know, he raised this issue as well. The communities want the support, but a patchwork approach community to community will work. They need the province to step in and add parks, and and I expect that they will uh, at some point soon. Richard, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a great weekend, Josh.
0: Well, it's been a hot week and looks like the weather is going to be fabulous uh, this weekend. Uh, Now, you may recall uh, yesterday we were speaking to New Westminster City Councillor Daniel Fontaine and he was talking about the fact that the city does have a climate change fund that's with almost $30 million sitting in the bank. And he was proposing that um, New Westminster uh, means test what he was proposing, but essentially low-income residents be given some sort of um, grant uh, for up to five, hundred dollars to purchase a cooling system an air conditioner for uh, their uh, various rental units uh, this all comes of course after a couple of years a couple of years ago where we had uh, the heat dome here in British Columbia over 600 British Columbians died because of that heat dome um, and as Mr. Fontaine said more than uh, 25 of those people who died lived in New Westminster well it's not just private residents as well it's also schools uh, when things get too hot it's hard to learn, So when is it too hot uh, for students and teachers to function in school? Joining me now to talk a little bit about heat waves and how we build our schools is Danielle Connolly. She is a New Westminster School Board trustee. Danielle, thank you for joining us.
4: Yeah, thank you very much for
0: having me. It's an interesting conversation. And look, it's not 45 degrees Celsius, but you and I both know that we have these hot, hot temperatures. They're starting a lot earlier and they're lasting a lot longer. Uh, I think nobody really disputes all of that. Uh, In New Westminster, I I know you had your secondary school there, an older school. It was uh, replaced with a brand new school. I, I did visit it about a couple months ago for a basketball tournament. Beautiful school. But I understand there have been some complaints or concerns over temperatures this week
4: uh yeah there have been indeed um you know there there is no air conditioning at the school um, we you know the facilities team does their best uh, each day purging out hot air in the evenings uh, bringing cooler air in and just monitoring the temperatures the best that they can but um you know, as it stands now, we, we we don't have the funding to you know have have AC at that school. Mm-hmm. Um, How old is that it,
0: school, by the way? How old is New Westminster? The, the school
4: is only a few years old. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, this this also leads to the you know a, a conversation around the funding cycle. You know, when it's. In a, approved to when shovels are in the ground that type of thing a lot has changed uh, including you know as you mentioned earlier the the shift in in these types of uh, weather patterns and temperatures and and these spikes that we're seeing you know i mean heat in the school in the summers and later june is never and that's always been consistent but it just seems to be how early it's happening and how much longer it seems to be happening for and and it's something i think that we need to be working Across all levels of government, uh, to to adapt to that and, so, and manage it.
0: So to confirm, when it, and it's difficult to fund, you know get uh, to receive funding for a brand new school. It takes a very long time. You're seeing that even in fast growing communities like Surrey. Um, so when when a school does get approved to be built, uh, mm-hmm. does it include fun- Does the funding include a cooling system?
4: Presently, it, uh, n- no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the short answer to that is no, <laughs> you know, as, as I'm sure you can appreciate, um, there's, there's a lot of um, back and forthing and, um, you know, capital requests that are put forward, uh, which includes uh, generally requests for cooling systems. But uh, whether that gets approved in, in the final um, product is, you know, can be up in the air. And in this case, it was not funded. It um, was
0: not funded for New West Secondary School. It's only mm-hmm. a few years old.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, exactly. I, I was looking at the West record, and they were saying that WorkSafe BC recommends an indoor comfort range of 23 to 26 degrees Celsius. It was hitting about 28 degrees, I believe, uh, earlier this week. Uh, so in this case, if there is this conversation, you're going to have some older schools in your community as well. Uh, does the school board now have to start looking at retrofitting some of these uh, schools, never mind just your high school, but even elementary schools? And do you have the budget for something like that?
4: uh well yes, as, as for retrofitting that would certainly be part of the equation. Um, but no there there is no no budget for that. Um, and and you know with with regards to the standards that you're talking about, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I, I don't believe there are any uh, standards um, that are school specific as you know with regards to temperatures and you know certainly um, teachers can do things to mitigate, you know move into gymnasiums, Outside, but you know, we're looking at older students too, who are you know perhaps looking at taking exams and that type of thing. Um, and and the bottom line is, we don't want to be in a situation where we have to close schools. I mean, that is a very very last resort. And you know, in in the heat, what does that mean? A child staying home um, in a you know in a hot house or apartment or or that type of thing? It's that's certainly a last resort, not not something that we want to be, you know. Is making it, the norm. <laughs> is it
0: fair to say this is now uh, front and centre as an issue, and not just in your community, but among for other school trustees as well, here in British Columbia? I mean, if you think about, you know, fortunately in July, August, school uh, school is out generally, uh, and those are very hot months, but, you know, places like Soyuz and many other uh, uh, cities in, lower, in, in, the, in British Columbia and here in Metro Vancouver, it can get very hot in May and June. Is this front and centre now for school trustees around the province?
4: I, I, You know, I can't speak on behalf of other districts, but I, I can't see how it's it's not certainly top of mind. And, and, you know, and then you look at places like northern BC or even in Alberta where, you know, it's not as simple as some of the, you know, general prescribed, you know, open the windows, let some fresh air in, that type of thing. You know, we're also having to adapt to all these other pieces of, our, of what seems to be becoming our new norm of forest fires starting in May. I mean, who would have... Um, thought of that happening to the extent that it is so so it's it's a bigger picture and as you know talking about schools being closed in July and August I mean schools are a huge community hub resource perhaps we can even look at you know if they're retrofitted being part of the solution for you know cooling centers that type of thing you know having being spaces for for families to go to I mean there's there's a lot that needs to be explored, I think, and, and looked into and in, in how we move forward,
0: yeah, I can understand older elementary schools and high schools, but when you've just built this beautiful new school in the case of new West secondary school mm-hmm. uh, that they didn't think of air conditioning or some sort of cooling system uh, you know mm-hmm. speaks to a lack of planning that that's for sure, and, and hopefully yeah. it is part of the conversation moving forward, Ms Connolly, thank yeah. you so much for your time.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Yesterday, uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office um, ta- was talking about uh, the cleaner fuel regulations that are expected. Uh, the report that the uh, the the office, uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office, uh, released, uh, talked about the impact that uh, Canada's clean fuel regulations will have on everyday families. Now, they will take into effect, as they say, on July first. What that basically means. Uh, is that you will probably see over the next seven or eight years that gas prices will go up $0.17 cents per litre. Now, that's on top of the carbon tax. So what's that mean, in regards to $0.17 cents per litre? Well, the Parliamentary Budget Office estimates for a low-income household, that means you'll be paying an extra $231 per year to gas up, and for higher-income households, uh, just over $1,000. Dollars. Now, the cleaner fuel regulations uh, have been long promised. Um, they've been delayed for a while, but uh, they're, look, over the long term, the new regulations uh, require fuel suppliers to gradually reduce the carbon intensity of uh, gasoline and diesel fuels uh, in the country. Well, Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party, certainly brought up the issue uh, this week. Take a listen to his questions at, in question period uh, this week.
5: We know that the Prime Minister plans to raise it up to $0.41 a litre or $1,500 net after rebates per family. But what most people do not know is that there is a second carbon tax he plans to stack on top of the first one, a sneaky tax he calls a fuel standard that will hit home heating gas, our factories, and countless other higher costs. So how much, how much and how much will Canadians pay in higher gas and diesel prices because of the second Liberal carbon tax?
0: Well, the Parliamentary Budget Office answered that question yesterday, 17 cents per litre. And Mr. Paul Lee, of course, referring to the second carbon tax. That was uh, the cleaner fuel tax. Now, Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault spoke on the issue the other day and talked about the importance of having cleaner fuel standards. Take a listen.
4: The clean fuel standard is not a carbon price. It's a polluter pay principle. Refineries are making record level profits, and and we feel that they must do their fair share in helping fighting climate change, like any other sectors of our economy, as we've shown in our emission reduction plan last year. Every sector must contribute and refiners must contribute as well. They have substantially increased 27 cents of increased refining margins between 2019 and 2021 alone. They can afford to invest in fighting climate change.
0: That was uh, Environment Minister Stephen Guilbault speaking on the issue of uh, the uh, 17 cent per litre uh, increase over the next seven years in regards to the Cleaner Fuel Tax. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the Cleaner Fuel Tax is Peter Milibar. the BC uh, United finance critic and Kamloops North Thompson MLA. Peter, thank you for joining us.
6: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And
0: so what's this mean in the context of British Columbia? I know sometimes we lead uh, this country on our uh, response to climate change. How does this or does it, does this impact British Columbia?
6: Well, it most certainly impacts British Columbia. So, uh, you know, I, I'm actually quite happy to see that the TBO came out with a, a price per leader. Uh, I've been asking uh, the provincial government since Clean B.C. was launched uh, back when they first started in 2018 or so, uh, what the B.C. Uh, low carbon fuel standard would actually mean to the price of the pump. Because when you're creating a, a fuel mix, it doesn't exist anywhere else uh, in our, our area that services us with fuel, being in Alberta and Washington state. There's obviously going to be a premium uh, put on that. So, so seeing now that, uh, that, in fact, it is a significant portion to the uh, per litre charge, and given that uh, we already have this standard in place, um, you know, it's no wonder that B.C. has the highest uh, gas prices to go along with the highest gas taxes in North America. And I guess most concerning is back when uh, former Premier Horgan uh, said he was going to tackle gas prices in B.C., he, he cut the B.C.U.C. to look into gas pricing. Uh, But they were forbidden from looking at government policy, provincial NDP policy, and provincial NDP taxes on the price of the pump. And I guess now we know why they didn't want uh, that looked at, because uh, obviously the steps they took with their uh, next level of of, uh, low-carbon fuel standard was going to add costs to the pump. Isn't there any way to
0: demand uh demand? you uh, know, cleaner fuel uh, to reduce emissions without it hitting the consumer. Is there is there not a way to extract higher standards from these uh, companies without actually it hitting the pocketbook of taxpayers?
6: Well, not really. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an additive basically to the product that that of course has a production cost uh, to it to add it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now if you have Alberta and, and all the other provinces, of Washington State uh, getting near the same standard. Uh, perhaps the premium won't be quite as significant. But I guess more worrisome is, I mean, I was asking uh, for literally years, the environment minister in B.C., uh, the energy minister in B.C., the finance minister in B.C., what type of modeling was done to find out what the price of the pump would be. And they were always dismissive. They always said they hadn't looked into it. It'd be hard to quantify. It might only be a couple of cents a liter. Um, and here we have a PBO report that says 17 cents a liter, and that's on a 15%. Uh, low carbon fuel standard. In BC, we're at a 20% low carbon fuel standard. So um, it's a significant difference to the price. And when you're trying to figure out the 50 or 60, 70 cents a liter difference between us and Alberta currently, um, I think it, it points a very clear indication as to why we would be paying as much as we are, especially as we head into the the busy summer driving months.
0: Well, I'm just basing this on Mr. Polyev's math. He says, look, the carbon tax is $0.41 per litre by the time it's fully implemented by 2030. This second carbon tax, as he refers to it, the $0.17 per litre for the cleaner fuel tax, is another uh, uh, $0.17. So that takes us up to $0.58 per litre. I don't know how by 2030 this can Remotely be palatable. I mean, I think everybody knows we need to do our part for climate change, but how do you do that in the context of the family budget? I'm just shocked that they somehow think this is remotely going to be palatable in the next few years.
6: Well, I think it speaks to the broader uh, piece, at least provincially here. Um, in terms of uh, the NDP not wanting to have an open and transparent conversation around some of these issues. And so um, I think if people are going to make climate decisions, they need to have the information in front of them. The, the public needs to fully understand what the tax policy is, um, uh, what the cost implication is. Uh, the government needs to properly defend that based on an on open and transparent understanding of the facts. Uh, that's not what we've had to this point. As we've led the country in these these low carbon fuel standards, mm-hmm. um, you know, if that's if that's what British Columbians say is a priority, fair enough. But let's have that conversation with all of the facts in front of us, not a BCUC report that's not allowed to look at these types of input costs into into uh, fuel at the pumps. Um, a government that says they've done no modeling, uh, yet here you have a PBO office federally that came up of the number relatively quickly. So that's, I think, the bigger concern I have. This is it's just this layer of, of secrecy. And if you want actual buy-in from a population on where you're headed as a government, you need to have that open and transparent and forthright conversation with them so they understand uh, the positives and the negatives of any of these types of taxation policy decisions.
0: Just joining us, we are speaking to Peter Millabar, BC United finance critic and Kamloops North Thompson MLA. We're talking about um, Canada's clean fuel regulations, which are set to take effect on July 1st. The new regulations will require fuel suppliers to gradually reduce the carbon intensity of gasoline and diesel fuels in the country. Sounds very bureaucratic, doesn't it? But what it, what's it mean to you? Well, uh, once it's fully implemented, it'll mean about 17 cents per litre. You'll be paying extra on top of the carbon tax, which is another $0.41 cents per litre. So $0.58 cents per litre once it's fully implemented by uh, 2030. Uh, the $0.17 cents alone for higher-income households is about $1,000 extra per year, $231 for lower-income households. Now, look, eventually the, the move is, or at least the desire from the government is, to move us towards EVs, uh, to do our part in regards to dealing with climate change. But I don't know, folks. Uh, you know, if, if you can't pay your bills and it's already expensive to live in Metro Vancouver or in many other parts of british columbia victoria is not cheap the interior is not cheap either it is the reality of everyday life here in british columbia i'm not sure how adding this much cost is somehow going to compel someone to just buy an EV, assuming they got lots of money kicking around uh, i understand doing our part but uh, i'm very concerned in regards to the impact on people's uh, uh, pocketbooks give me a call on the open line 604-280-9898 star 98 98 on your cell phone uh, let's go to alan and sell Surrey hi alan
5: yeah, sorry, I just had, uh, a quick reminder that the uh, cost uh, of you know, elite in Ottawa and in Victoria are totally insulated from the reality of what it costs. Mm-hmm. Because the cost of carbon taxing is embedded in everything that you touch, buy and eat. Mm-hmm. Whether the baker is baking your bread or whether the food is coming on transport or whether it's coming on a locomotive. Uh, carbon taxes are embedded into the cost of all goods and services that you touch in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reality is, and the insanity is, uh, that uh, before COVID, we were racking up uh, a million uh, a month cross-border on the three-border crossing just south of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's, uh, all of a sudden, if everybody only spent $100 on fuel, that's about a $600 million direct loss per annum. Just in direct taxation and believe me the lineups when i see them uh, stretching from costco to say 10 cents later also stretching all the way back from blaine so please somebody go down to blaine and uh, linden and take a look at the lineups and take a look at the lineups at the gas stations because it's just like the cigarette tax once you bring the tax to a, law, a level of law of diminishing returns it's no longer worthwhile to tax because now you lose everything. You don't lose a little bit of tax. You lose all of it once yep. it's sent to uh, you know, Indian reserves for cigarettes or whether it's sent to the mob for bootleg cigarettes or whether it's sent for uh, fuel. So at some point, you, you know, the straw breaks the camel's
0: backs. Alan, thank you for your that Alan, time. thank you for your call. Appreciate it. I mean to cut you off. We've got lots of folks waiting, but I get your point. You're right. The behavior we want is moving towards EVs, uh, but you're right. It's also going to push a lot of people across the border. You can already see that in lineups uh, already uh, in in Surrey and in, in, in Abbotsford and in Point Roberts as well. Let's go to Mitch in Vancouver. Hi, Mitch. Hey, what's on your mind?
3: Uh, um, well, basically, I don't really know anyone that agrees with this, uh, you know, the surcharge and the fuel, the carbon tax. And furthermore, like, I know a lot of people who are moving out to the valley and they're commuting to Vancouver every day, sitting in gridlock traffic. So I don't really understand the, you know, at the end of the day, we all get left with that, right?
0: Oh, you're absolutely right. It, it, this is about uh, changing behavior. I just think there's better ways to do it rather than sticking it to the working people. That's that's the cool. cool. I mean, I think I'm okay with a carbon tax, uh, but it, yeah. but it has to be revenue neutral. Number one, and then when you add this on top of it, it's just not fair to everyday working people. It's just not fair. And uh, you've yeah, got yeah. y- it doesn't fit the family budget. I don't. I mean, look at the amount of people who didn't want to pay the the, the, um, uh, the, the toll on the Portman and the the huge increase we saw over uh, over the Patullo Bridge, the Alex Fraser Bridge, and there is going to be a tax revolt. There is a reckoning coming eventually. Peter, I'm going to give you a last word. You got about thirty seconds left. Uh, uh, is there anything at this point we can do beyond as taxpayers calling up our MPs and MLAs and uh, raising bloody heck?
6: Well, I I think it's important to know that B.C. is always a bit unique in these conversations because we already exceed all of these federal uh, areas. And so we're actually paying this already uh, to British Columbia. And then we get exempted from the federal side of it. Uh, The problem is that if you're trying to change behavior with this, you need a government willing to actually openly talk about what they're actually charging you at the pump to try to get you to change your behavior. If they just want to quietly hide it in the price of the pump and hope you're going to magically change your habits but not even realizing what you're actually paying in low carbon fuel standards in British Columbia already and what you're already paying in carbon tax, how are you going to, you just assume you're paying really high gas prices. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that transparency, that open conversation by the NDP is completely missing because they actually don't want to tell you that it's their policies that is adding uh, currently uh, almost uh, 50 cents a liter at the pump. Peter, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Great, thank you.
0: Uh, if you're just joining us, we were speaking to Danielle Connolly at 3:30. Uh, she is a New Westminster School Trustee. We were talking about the just the, this warm weather we've been having, and yesterday uh, one of her colleagues from New Westminster Council, uh, Daniel Fontaine, uh, joined us talking about that. You know, New Westminster's got about a 30 million dollar climate change fund. That's there's, the money hasn't been used; it's sitting in the bank. Uh, what he was recommending is that look, some of that money should be set aside for low income residents. To they should be given a 500 Dollar rebate, a tax incentive, or some sort of loan, perhaps, uh, to purchase. Uh, an air conditioning unit, a $500 cooling unit for their apartment. Uh, so it would be means tested, of course. Uh, and of course, as we were talking, we also found out uh, uh, that, uh, you know, even in schools, uh, in New in Westminster Secondary School, which is a new school, the old school is still there, but the new school uh, opened up a few years ago. Beautiful new school, by the way, lots of glass and concrete, but, you know, temperatures are hitting 28, 29 degrees. Uh, and there was a concern over that it was quite warm. Uh, now, Ms. Connolly who joined us at 3.30, they said, said that there is no cooling system, there is no air conditioning unit for a brand new school. Uh, and this is the type of conversation we need to be having on a regular basis that look, moving forward, I mean, it should have been done five years ago, but uh, moving forward, any new school, any new public facility uh, that we build should have some sort of cooling or he- a heat pump system, a cooling system built in. Here, Ed- Edward Homer from Vancouver Island uh, emailed me and said, Jazz can't believe they would uh, build a school or any other new construction for that matter without installing a heat pump system, efficient heating and cooling. You're right, Edward, and uh, hopefully moving forward, uh, thanks to Ms. Conley raising that issue today on this show, that we start talking about those types of things. It's just absurd uh, that we are uh, allowing uh, something, like we allowed something like that to happen. Call me on the buzz line I do want to hear your thoughts on this issue 641, 604-331-2899 we were just speaking to Peter Milibar he uh, is the uh, finance critic for BC United uh, and he also is an MLA for Campbell North Thompson talking about clean fuel energy regulations that are kicking in on July 1st the new, the regulations themselves um, are there to for, for fuel suppliers to slowly reduce the carbon intensity of gasoline and diesel fuels but what it does mean is it will slowly add to your bill uh, the cost will be about 17 cents per liter once it's fully implemented uh, that means about 230 dollars extra you'll be paying per year for low-income uh, Canadians and a thousand dollars for those uh, of uh, higher income and that's not a number from the opposition uh, that's from the Par- parliamentary budget office and so add that to the carbon tax, which is about $0.41 cents per litre, once it's fully implemented uh, by 2030 as well. So think about what you pay now. Add a well, almost 50 $0.58 cents per litre on top of that. And I'm not sure how any household budget especially the driving that we do in the lower mainland we are not all able to take transit especially suburbanites where 75% of lower mainland residents live uh, you can see a tax uh, revolt brewing and as that slowly grows and grows every year and it hits the pocketbooks of british columbians uh, give me a call on the bus line I want to hear from you this is to change behavior is your behavior changing are you considering buying an ev uh, or uh, do you feel that look these changes are being brought in way too quickly 604-331 2899. Like I said, you can email me as well at jazzjs at cknw.com. Now, uh, we've had lots of people coming downtown because of the great weather during the weekday and last weekend as well we've seen violence and other public safety challenges arise because of that uh, massive crowds have been converging on our city beaches well into the evening and well past the, the closing hour of some beaches of 10pm uh, last week at English Bay uh, the Vancouver Police Department responded to a sexual assault, a bear spray attack and a stabbing at Davie and Denman uh, as well so they've already said this weekend uh, they want to increase their presence uh, downtown and, of course, at uh, the many beaches in and around downtown as well. I spoke to Constable Tanya Visinton from the Vancouver Police Department a couple of hours ago to get an update on these increased beach patrols. Take a listen.
2: Yeah, so with this nice weather that we're having, we are expecting there will be more people that will come to the city. Uh, We know that they will be visiting our beaches and our entertainment district. So having said that, we will have extra officers deployed in our entertainment district. So that's the Gramble Street uh, in Yale Town and our Gastown Entertainment District. And starting this weekend, the kind of unofficial start of summer, we will be having extra officers deployed on our beaches so that's on the kit side as well as the English Bay and Sunset Beach side.
0: Uh, have there been any challenges at the beach?
2: So, when there is more people, uh, or when the nice weather does bring in more people, um, we know that brings in a bit more challenges, a bit more issues that may arise. So, having those extra officers there will be there for everyone's safety. So, if you need help, uh, you can either call 911 or flag one of our officers down.
0: Uh, Was it last weekend, I think it was reported that VPD responded to a a sexual assault, a bear spray attack and a stabbing at Davian Denman. So uh, you were pretty busy last weekend as well.
2: Yes, so it was, uh, again, a busy weekend for us last weekend. And uh, w- with uh, the extra officers deployed on the beaches, we do have extra officers deployed throughout the city. So if need be, we can bring in extra resources throughout the city.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, in regards to the entertainment district, I know there's been much talk about uh, safety and security there. Uh, Have things changed in the entertainment district? There's always going to be a bit of a challenge on a Friday and Saturday night that I I think uh, listeners uh, would understand and accept, but have things improved in regards to public safety uh, down there?
2: So like you said, with every weekend, we do see um, more and more people that come to enjoy what our city has to offer, and that is uh, along our entertainment districts, and especially with the warm weather. So Um, you know, from time to time, we do see with more people brings an increase of crime. That's something that we expect and we're also prepared for. So uh, we will have extra officers deployed. So if you are on Granville Street or Yale Town or Gastown and and something goes awry, feel free to flag one of our members down as we're we're there wearing our reflective vests and we're a very visible presence.
7: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Are there any new numbers? I'm just curious in regards to random attacks in the city. I know uh, the most often used number was four random attacks a day, and that was uh, more so last year. Are there any updated numbers that you would have? I'm just curious in regards to uh, those types of random attacks. Or, have they uh, come down, or are we still dealing with the same challenges?
2: No,
0: I don't have those numbers. Sorry, Chaz. Okay, no, I, I, and I know it takes a while for stats and getting a broader trend line sometimes, but uh, in regards to the overall issue of just public safety uh, random acts of violence, and, and people feeling and perceiving their own safety? Do you think things have improved beyond last year's conversation? It's hard to, uh, you know, say yes or no specifically, but do you think people's perceptions are changing in regards to safety, or do you think the challenges still remain?
7: I
2: don't, sorry, I don't even know. Like, I don't want to speak for people, so maybe...
0: Not a problem. I don't know problem. how I
2: would answer that, yeah.
0: Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. I Sorry. Think we'll, I, no, 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 I, I, we'll leave it at that. I totally understand.
2: Okay. And then... Yeah, uh, I'm trying to keep it light. Like, we don't want... We try to keep it light. You know, we want people We want people to come and enjoy the city and, and come see what the city has to offer. We, we expect that and we want that. We just want people to do so safely and responsibly. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Jeff.
0: Okay, take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye security screening officers at Abbotsford International Airport will be holding a rally outside the airport on Tuesday to protest what they say is their employer's failure to resolve uh, concerns over uh, working conditions. Joining me now to talk about uh, the security screen- screeners uh, at the airport is Al the president of the United Steelworkers Local 2009. Al, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jazz, for having me on the show. Now, how long have uh, these individuals been without a contract?
1: It's been over two years now. Our contract expired in uh, April 1st of uh, 2021. Why has it taken so long? Well, to be honest with you, uh, we were pretty successful in negotiating a whole bunch of non-monetary issues back in 2021, 22. uh, And then the employer walked away from the table saying that they wanted to wait uh, what they were going to give as wage increases to uh, uh, Vancouver for YVR. And so we had to wait until that all happened and, um, of course, uh, they were negotiating with other uh, airports and other collective agreements, and uh, we are now the last airport in Canada without a new collective agreement.
0: So, Vancouver's is negotiated, and uh, it, how, how long ago was that? About almost a year ago. A year ago. So, and in, in what they've been negotiating, they, their argument is they've been negotiating with other airports across the country, and they just haven't gotten to Abbotsford?
1: Well, they, they only do the uh, West Coast. They only look after regional airports and uh, international airports on the West Coast, mostly in BC and a couple of uh, Alberta.
0: How busy is Abbotsford Airport? I know it, it's still a lot of these airports still are haven't reached pre-pandemic levels, but you know my understanding of Abbotsford is just every year it seemed to be you know hitting brand new um, uh, targets in regards to uh, to, to passengers.
1: Yeah, uh, Abbotsford is uh, kind of unique in that we're surpassing uh, pre-pandemic passengers. Uh, We're over a million passengers a year now. Uh, We're quickly expanding. We have a few international flights, and uh, uh, Abbotsford is a hub that a lot of people in the lower mainland are preferring to go to because of the convenience.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, How many uh, screeners are we talking about here? We're
1: talking about sixty, say sixty-five uh, screening officers.
0: Mm-hmm. And and correct me if I'm wrong here. There was a hundred percent support or vote for for job action.
1: Well, we we, we took uh, a strike vote. Yes, there was a hundred percent strike mandate. Everybody is uh, upset uh, why it's taken so long and why the employer refuses to offer us anything that's you know fair and equitable. Uh, but I have to be honest, the members are very um, uh, hesitant. to to do any job action that's going to uh, impact on uh, travellers. They sympathize with travellers and the long lineups that they've had to endure during the pandemic and after the pandemic, and they don't don't want to inconvenience travellers any more than they already have been.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, How would you describe the next couple of months, next two or three months, in regards to the potential to get a contract uh, hammered out here?
1: Well, I'm hoping that uh, our demonstration on Tuesday at Abbotsford Airport with a uh, 100 to 150 people that have uh, committed to attending is going to put some pressure. And, and let's be honest, it's not just our our employer, which is Allied Universal. Uh, they get their funding from CATSA, which is the Canadian Air Transport mm-hmm. Safety Authority, uh, and they fall under the control of the Ministry of Transportation federally. So really... Um, what we're asking the federal government is to appreciate and, and value uh, the work that the screening officers do. It's their responsibility and their hard work and dedication that make sure that air passengers get safely to their destination. Well, how
0: hard, I'm, 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 I, one thing I don't understand is if you already have, have, have you've hammered out a deal with YVR. Already, which is the the biggest airport uh, in uh, in 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 British Columbia and probably Western Canada. So, how difficult can it be for the second airport? And let's be honest, it is the second airport for the Lower Mainland because of its uh, location, lots of space there, uh, Highway One is there, uh, and the continued growth of the Fraser Valley. How difficult can it be to hammer out a wage scale when you already have already done that with YVR?
1: Well, well. first of all, the, the uh, contract at YVR wasn't really, as you said, hammered out. It went to binding arbitration. Uh, they got their deal based on what an arbitrator figured the value was. Um, our screening officers at Abbotsford want the same value of the screening officers uh, at the YVR. It's not so much the base rate. It's the premiums for cost of living allowance. Uh, that we fall far behind vancouver we 're about uh, seven seven and a half percent behind them in wages, and what we 're asking for is uh, a catch up on the cost of living allowance and there 's another premium for the volume, the stress uh, the consequences uh, of dealing with passengers and uh, uh, and uh, having to deal with sometimes dangerous substance and even uh, you know uh, explosive materials and all that. What we really want is a catch-up on those premiums that would make us comparable to uh, screening officers doing the same job, living in the same communities as our members. Uh,
0: If nothing is agreed upon, uh, if nothing happens uh, after your your rally on Tuesday, how close would we be to a a strike position that could inconvenience the
1: public? Whatever we decide, I can tell you that uh, we're going to do whatever the least impact is going to be on travelers. Uh, that may mean rotating strikes, that may be a ban on overtime, that may be work to rule. There's a number of different options in front of us. We don't prefer uh, you know, to withdraw our labor and basically shut down the airport, because um, and, and that extra volume will go out other places and, again, inconven- inconvenience travelers. Al,
0: thank you so much for your time today.
1: Jazz, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
0: Let's talk about bottle binning uh, in Chinatown in the downtown core. If you're walking around downtown or in Chinatown, many times you see people with carts, uh, many times they're elderly binning for cans and bottles. Um, in many cases, um, it's a they're, they play a significant role, these individuals, in regards to recycling uh, in our communities. They're mostly low-income people and, uh, who turn to binning uh, as well to support uh, themselves. Uh, and But it is part of what we see every single day in this city. Well, recently, Chris Cheung, who is a reporter for the Tai, wrote a fabulous uh, uh, feature called On Bottle Binning in Chinatown to get a sense of who these people are, give us a perspective of where they come from and why they do what they do. And Chris joins us now. Chris, thank you for for joining us today hi thanks for having me so what compelled you to write this story first and foremost what interested you about this story
7: Yeah, I think, um, you know, as you mentioned, if you, you know, live in Vancouver, you do see binners um, out and about a lot, um, especially now with the the weather heating up, too. Um, And I have done some pieces on binners over the years. Um, Mostly they were people who are are white. Um, And when I've spoken with um, some of the depots, they mentioned that about a tenth of the people who do come in are these seniors. Um, And I was just really curious about, you know, what their stories are and, and why they're doing this. And there, there have been a few pieces over the years that, that have been written about them, mm-hmm. um, but they've kind of treated these seniors as a, as a kind of a, a super senior. So we have some seniors who you know, donate everything that they've um, earned to charity or um, say that they've used the money to send their kids to university. Um, but as I started to, to talk to some social workers who do um, have clients who've been, um, I start to paint a different picture of people who do this um, much more for necessity.
0: Mm-hmm. When you say those people uh, who have to do this out of necessity, who are they?
7: Yeah, so um, in terms of Chinatown, these are a lot of the seniors who live in um, the old buildings um, that are you know, uh, kind of like SROs in the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. a lot of them, they've been brought over to Canada to take care of their grandkids um, so they would have lived with their adult children and their grandkids. Uh, but once those kids grow up, um, a lot of them, you know, they value their independence or, you know, maybe they actually don't get along with the family and they decide to move out. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who don't speak English um, and they speak Cantonese or, or Mandarin, uh, Chinatown kind of becomes the, the obvious place for them where there are all of those shops and services. Um, but, you know, for th- for those who um, might not have been citizens for, for that long, um, they might not be able to get uh, uh, their old age security um, or maybe they just don't have enough um, uh, spending money, like from from the family that they come from. Um, so they they come out to do this job, and it's something that they can they can just pick up and go whenever they like.
0: Uh, and any sense of how much they work? Uh, you know, it's not something where you just go to one location. It is constantly walking around and going to specific locations. I'm sure they have their roots. Any sense of what kind of hours they put into binning?
7: Yeah, I mean, there are people who go who will go every day. Um, uh, one estimate is that they can make about 50 bucks a day, which which still isn't very much if you work um, a full time. Um, but yeah, the one senior that I interviewed, she um, goes uh, a little bit, you know, in the, in the evenings, not really full time. But for a lot of these seniors, too, um, they, they might have a full time job as well. So Uh, The one I spoke with, Ms. Lang, um, she actually worked as a dishwasher for 10 years, uh, and then binning was something she did on the side of that as well. And where do they
0: take um, uh, these uh, bottles? Uh, You were saying that uh, there's some binning. uh, United We Can is a well-known organization, Binners Project. Do they go to those local organizations, or are there others that they go and, and drop off what they collect?
7: Yeah, that's right. So for Chinatown, um, so what I did was I spent a morning with Mrs. Lang. So uh, she took all the bottles that she collected from the week, uh, and then I met up with her in the morning um, outside of her, um, um, her her building, which is over 100 years old. Mm-hmm. So um, already coming down from the steps for her uh, was, was quite a chore. She had two big boxes. Um, uh, she had a, a little grocery cart, which she used to tug it along. Um, and there used to be a United Weekend uh, on Hastings, which was much closer But instead, she has to walk um, to the United Weekend that's now on Industrial Avenue. And so that's half an hour away. Um, And it was quite eye-opening for me because when I went out with her, um, we actually ran into a neighbor of hers who was younger. It was a man. uh, And he took all of his cans onto the bus. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was chatting with her. How come, you know, you don't take the bus as well since it's quite a walk? Uh, And she's been worried a lot these past three years because of um, anti-Chinese racism in the neighborhood uh, and so she would you know, rather just, you know, when you go on the bus, she becomes very visible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everyone on the bus might have to wait for her as she boards. So she just, she just doesn't want that attention. Um, and so you know, because of that, it's caused her to um, change what her commute to the depot is, which is just to walk over there. And it's, and it's quite heavy. Um, her tower of cans is actually um, the same height as, as she is.
0: Yeah. Besides the, the racism, which you, you've raised and, and has been highlighted many times, are there other challenges when it comes to safety? I mean, you're walking around in these cans. Those, those are dollars for somebody as well. And there are desperate people dealing with mental health and addiction issues. Is safety a, a big concern for her beyond just the racism, as, as you said, that she has to sometimes deal with?
7: Yeah, yeah, it totally is. Um, You know, for any job that you would imagine, you know, being like a a janitor um, or custodian, like a more formal kind of um, employment that you do work with, uh, with trash or with fluids or bacteria, um, you know, you, you would usually get PPE from your employer. But for someone who is binning, who's doing this informally, Um, You know, they might not have this or if they are quite low income, they might not buy it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also don't get that training as well. Um, So for her, she actually, you know, not speaking English, she can't go to the depot and have somebody walk her through, um, you know, what's the way to do binning safely, how to arrange all of her cans. Um, That's something she had to learn through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a very informal kind of job in, in all of those senses.
0: Um, how many binners do we have in our, in our city? Any sense of how many we have in Vancouver or in Chinatown?
7: Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, but for the United We Can, I believe they have. Um, they say they have between six hundred and seven hundred regular customers who go.
0: Wow, six seven hundred. I didn't think that number would be that high. And when you when you speak to Ms. Young and and other binners. Uh, What's their demeanor like? Are they happy people uh, or they uh, people who feel like they've they've been forced into this situation? What's their demeanor like? What's it like to be around them and talk to them?
7: Yeah, I think um, sometimes there's this impression of low income people, um, you know, lazy or not wanting to work for their money. Um, And there are some vendors who have talked. Um, about you know, you know why don't they go panhandling instead? But for for people like Mrs. Miss um, Miss Lang, who I interviewed, you know they they take pride in in earning their money. So mm-hmm. to them, they do treat it like a, a job. And so even though she doesn't earn very much, like every every can every every cent that she gets from it means a lot to her. Um, so yeah, they, they treat it very much like their, their formal employment. and they, they do take pride in it too, because they realize they are um, taking part of recycling uh, cans and bottles in the city that have just left out. Well,
0: you know, anybody who's been downtown in Chinatown, you see these individuals uh, collecting these uh, cans and you don't think much of it sometimes, but uh, you've really done a fabulous job highlighting this world and um, hopefully bringing some humanity uh, to to these people and getting a sense of who they are. really appreciate your time today, Chris.
7: Thanks for having me.
0: goodbye now is over. That's all, thank
8: you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God
0: it's... This week, we look at Canadian culture wars playing out in our passport redesign and a table for two, please, in the no-rug-rat section. Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Live is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Well, let's talk about our passport redesign. Never has a passport announcement ignited so much controversy. Uh, Pierre Polyev said that the Liberal government hit delete on Terry Fox. Uh, in a nutshell, the new passport is, it focuses more on nature, less on history. So you are not seeing some of the iconic images that we are perhaps used to. Uh, no Stanley Cup. You're not seeing Terry Fox. Uh, we don't. See the famous photo, well, the last spike going into the Canadian Pacific Railway, all those types of things. And you're seeing new issue, new pictures today of bears and owls and and nature scenes and children jumping into a lake. Well, Pierre Pauliev certainly didn't like it. He says that it, this is just an ongoing, um, uh, I guess, culture war issue, and the, the Liberal government is trying to, at, at to a certain degree, redefine what it means to be Canadian all over a passport design. Oh my. I know, I know. Well, Leah, let me go to you first. Your thoughts. I mean, have you seen the images of the new passport? What did you think of it?
9: Yeah, I did check it out. And I mean, before I even saw the images, I was like, you, why is everybody making such a big deal of a passport, you know, redesign? And it was like, really? Like, it's just a passport until I did some research as well. And I mean, I don't think they should have gotten rid of the Terry Fox image. When I think of Canada, I think of Terry Fox, not a man with a wheelbarrow. That's what's replacing his picture, a man with a wheelbarrow. And then they're also replacing Nellie McClung, who was the activist and the author and politician who was instrumental in obtaining the vote for Canadian women. They're putting a squirrel in her replacement. <laughs> yeah, no. So, I mean, and, and I and also Maple Syrup is taking stop, the stop, picture stop, of no. the Canadian.
8: Morse, no, no. So, stop, like... stop, stop. Right. Stop, yeah. stop, 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 Yeah, I have Go my, on, Sarah. my passport. <laughs> I have my passport that expired in and. 15 16 still yeah so I've got my, I, I'm so I this is my research I, I have exhaustive research of my own I'm o- opening my my present passport which is a 10-year passport and yes there are some very pretty pictures inside which I would never have noticed or bothered to look at because frankly I really haven't been anywhere <laughs> since I renewed my passport but yeah there's some pictures of trains and there's a picture of the country and there's some more trains I look at my previous passport that expired and every single picture every page is just a Maple Leaf. Why do we care? Nobody cares. This is ridiculous. I never would have even noticed if this hadn't become a story and we are having culture wars over a passport when people can't even afford to travel? Are you kidding me? No. Yeah.
4: It is. It <laughs> this is, is
8: embarrassing. I've literally two passports in my hand. One has some pretty pictures, which I never would have noticed because they would just be stamped on. And the other one, yeah. just little maple leaves. Oh, my God, though. Let's stop the presses. This is the most important thing ever. Who cares about anything else? Pierre you, thank goodness you're doing a great job as opposition leader. You jackass. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, every government, whoever's in power does frame the conversation around what it is to be Canadian. And they do have some sort of impact. I think under Stephen Harper, um, he actually repainted the government plain, red, white, and blue with True, North, Strong, and Free yep. written on it. He put Royal back into, uh, into title. So, you know, the Conservatives have their own view of, of, uh, of Canadian history. I mean, I, I, I agree with the, the Terry Fox and, and these in, yeah. you know, iconic Canadians who uh, have played sure, a significant but, role, but 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 it's still a passport. You're right. Like,
8: and, and honestly, yeah. the outside from the two passports that I have in my hand. So the newer one is, um, the, the one that is current for me right now is slightly larger. The other one is a little bit smaller. The exterior design, exactly the same, except for like one small thing at the bottom. But otherwise, I mean, like, you know, if you've got that much free time, like knock your boots off. But like I said, the inside of the original passport that is expired, it's just Maple Leafs. That's all there is. Every single page is Maple Leafs with smaller. That's Maple the older that's one, it. right? That's the older one. Yeah, the newer one has this like new redesign, and yeah. it does have like the the different pictures, and that and that's fine. But the but thing I is have. that honestly, we wouldn't even know this if I didn't happen to have my expired passport. We are getting <laughs> outraged. Over absolutely nothing. So, but, yeah, where, where was the issue from the maple
9: leaf to all the pitchers, right? There was no exactly outrage over no, that. But and, and, you know.
8: and who did or did not got, got left off on that one, right? Like, I mean, I'm sure that if somebody was bored enough, they could have gone, oh, my goodness, you know, so-and-so's grandfather who discovered the butter churn got left out. And this is an outrage butter lovers everywhere
0: but you know we
9: We we've hit a
8: hot button with
9: sarah here well
0: we have but it's also just a (laughs) polarized uh, cultural environment not just from in canada but i think it's seeping over from the united states i mean it's gotten so bad in the united states you got the governor of florida picking fights with disney and mickey mouse i mean it's just and losing (laughs) (laughs) don't mess with mickey
8: seriously don't screw with the
0: mouse (laughs) it will come
8: back and bite you on the ass.
0: You're just joining us. We are speaking to our Friday wrap panel. Leah Halim is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, an author and broadcaster. We were just talking about the controversy over the redesigned Canadian passport. We're now going to talk a little bit about (laughs) child-free restaurants and flights being a thing. And recently, the Daily Hive conducted a survey in March to see how Canadians felt about uh, child-free dining. And this all comes after a restaurant uh, in New Jersey, an Italian restaurant, Spark conversation after introducing a new policy banning children under 10 from dining in. Boy, the pushback was uh, pretty loud, that's for sure. Uh, and when Daily Hive did a survey among Canadians, 76% of Canadians thought the policies were were great and wanted to see other establishments adopt them. Uh, A U.S. survey uh, by PhotoAid in January found that 8 in 10 Americans, travelers, wanted adult-only flights. Now, I don't know if this is an ongoing trend or whatever it may be. Uh, In India, low-cost Indian carry Indigo has added quiet zones for its seating where children are not... Aloud, I'm not sure where this started. Boy, oh boy, this is going to rile people. Leah, let me start with you first and foremost. Would you pay to go to a restaurant with no kids? Now, be absolutely honest.
9: Uh, yes. What hate mail do I want today? Let's see. <laughs> um I I mean, okay, so... It's good and bad, you know, because who wants to go when a kid's running around and screaming? But I went out last weekend to a nice restaurant, and there was a little two-year-old girl behind me. Mm -hmm. And all I hear is, hello. And I turn around, and she's super cute. And little girls love my hair. And so she's just staring at my hair. And I was like, oh, have a good meal. And she was good. You know what I mean? She didn't run around. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't annoying. But then you have the ones that are, right? So the parents that don't discipline their children enough. So, I mean, if I want to go for a nice dinner – like, you know, quiet dinner, then, yeah, I'll pay more for that. But if I'm, like, going an everyday thing, you know, where you're kind of going to a place that's family-friendly, then you know what you're in for. But on the plane, how can you have a quiet zone? You're going to hear the baby screaming in first class or back class or wherever you are, right? You're still going to hear it. So I don't know. Maybe it's a new way.
0: section they want to create. I don't know how they're going to do that. But, uh, Sarah, how Plastic. about you?
8: <laughs> I mean, I, I feel kind of the same way. It's, you know, if, if I'm in a family-friendly restaurant, then you kind of expect yeah. that. If I'm at a, like, you know, if I was dining at a Michelin star restaurant, which is never going to happen, <laughs> because, as I've said before, I've got the palate of a five-year-old boy. So, really, all of that kind of stuff is lost they don't on know me. They're not chicken nuggets, right? <laughs> exactly. Nuggets. Now, can I, do you have any honey dip sauce with that? That would be great. Yeah, no, I'm, like, that, That, but on the, on the rare occasion that I might find myself, you know, spending $500 for half a steak, um, yes, I would yeah. prefer it to be, like, a child-free zone. But at the very least, that I would hope that if the parents did have a child with them, like if it was an inference, something like that, that and they, that they couldn't leave at home, that they would at least make an effort if the child started to disrupt others, that they would do something. But as far as planes are concerned, I think that that's, I mean, it's, I, 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 I don't have kids, and I mean, so I, I, I you know some of my sympathies are not so much and others are, but I've been on planes when there's been <laughs> frazzled moms with two kids. And, yeah. you know, the little one is running. and They and feel bad. Like you, you feel bad. Like, I've literally said, like, hey, like, little Johnny or Susie, come over here and, let, like, you know, let's watch the movie together or hold the baby for the mom while she goes to the bathroom or changes the other one's diaper. You know, like, honestly, most of the time in those kind of situations, giving the side eye and being snotty about it, the easier mm-hmm. thing is to just be the better person and say... What can I do to let's get through this How can so I everybody help? else can enjoy their flight, right? Yeah. I mean, be it, the better person. Exactly. Be the yeah. better person. Yeah.
0: I mean, every time I see um, a mom <laughs> or dad with 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 a young child that's crying, and we were in Mexico, what, a month and a half ago, and I just, I I feel, I'm completely sympathetic because I've been there, totally. my wife and I've been on the plane, mm-hmm. and when we used to live abroad, uh, I remember the first time bringing our son back, and he must have been on The a long way. It is a long way. It's two eight-hour flights, and I, my wife yeah. and I just read, I said, I just grab all that kid up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he will sleep through the whole thing, and that's what we did. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was the final two hours that he was up and running around. He was all, all it was. It was a challenge then, but boy, I tell you, it's it is not easy being a parent. But they, then I guess that's that's where you as a parent have to decide. If you had a young one, should they be going to higher end restaurants long, uh, or well, some long restaurants? Distance right mm-hmm.
4: but also yeah.
9: like i mean airlines can give noise noise cancelling headphones to everybody that would be a nice thing to do you know just if there's babies on board crying here you go just pass them out you know i think that would be
0: airlines don't give anything out anymore
8: Well, <laughs> well no, that's that's the back in back in the day when travel was glamorous which is yeah. certainly not now because it's like oh thank no. you i really am enjoying your feet in between my head re- headrest that's yeah. excellent thank yeah. you so much uh-huh. but Come back around. in the day i mean maybe they you know they would have done an area where like for children right like i mean but this is the thing is now the seats get smaller you're basically i mean like it's I, i'm surprised they don't hand you a pound of butter and a spatula to squeeze you into your seat these days yeah. and i mean <laughs> you throw in a couple of small kids it's a gong show, but like I feel for the parents, right? Like you're just trying to get yeah. across through wherever you want to go. And if people are not being helpful, like come on everybody, like we're all And the pressure together.
9: on their ears is a lot yeah. on babies and kids. So it hurts. Totally them, so you gotta
8: understand.
7: You exactly. know? And if you a lend
8: a hand if you lend a hand in that kind of situation to the parents, chances are the kids gonna calm down a lot sooner. Just give the parent like five minutes to regroup. That's often like all they need right uh, exactly they feel well. stress. They I, feel the stress yeah, too, i right? feel
0: so. so much tolerance and empathy coming from you guys today that's uh, Aww, that is fabulous but if, so. but if i'm in
8: a 500 hundred dollar <laughs> a plate restaurant and your brat starts screaming it's all hell loose I'm so, and it. don't show her a passport either don't show me your passport i don't want to see it
0: <laughs> you don't want to see it <laughs> ladies thank you all right have a good right. weekend, guys. guys. Have a